0: And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Last year, we spoke with Dr. Phil Blosser about the gift of tongues, and um, actually, what is it? A question that has been of great significance, uh, especially through the 20th century, as we've seen the rise of Pentecostalism and various charismatic movements. Uh, and this is always a, this has always been, uh, in my experience, anyways uh, a debate among serious Christians. Uh, is, is tongues a, uh, a personal praise language? Uh, is tongues something that uh, should be exercised in the assembly, uh, but always with an interpretation? Uh, it, are tongues uh, unlearned foreign languages, which uh, can be employed in a missionary situation, foreign mission situation? And um, We're going to go over that again and then take a look at some outstanding figures in church history and how they regarded the phenomenon of speaking tongues and how they regarded the biblical material. Uh, Dr. Phil Blosser is the author of a three-volume series called Speaking in Tongues, a Critical Historical Examination. He is a professor of philosophy at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. His other books include Shaler's Critique of Kant's Ethics, and he's served for many years as acting secretary and webmaster for the Max Shaler Society of North America. He's chaired various panel discussions at the American Philosophical Association and the American Catholic Philosophical Association.
1: Phil, thanks for joining me again. Uh thank you Al for having me. It's great to be here and uh, really appreciate the time. Let's uh, do some uh, quick summary here. Um
0: the issue of speaking in tongues uh becomes uh, a controversial issue beginning the early part of the
1: 20th century as I understand yes, it. Yes, right. Tell us why. Correct. Yeah. Well, um one problem with the the word for tongues is that it's become rather equivocal in the way it's used uh tongues today since the pentecostal movement in the early 20th century has taken on a kind of mystical or uh supernatural uh sort of hue and uh, and thus the the word tongues as well as a number of other words has uh have uh, taken on some uh semantic range of meanings that is is maybe a bit problematic and has to be nailed down a bit. Uh, The word tongues in Greek, glossa or gloseis, gloseis, uh, has only two meanings in church history. Um, And one meaning is the physical tongue, the organ that we speak with, and the other is simply language, human language. And so... um, it helps to to nail down some of these these words and and define what we mean by them when we speak. Uh, several other related words are uh, charism. Charisms can be supernatural. That's the way the the magisterium refers to the gift of tongues, for example, as an extraordinary gift. And there's certain conditions for that. But tongues. Uh, can also be a gift that's used in a perfectly, perfectly uh, natural way. So charisms can be natural gifts, like the gift of teaching or the gift of hospitality, and so forth. Um, another word is uh, uh, the word ec- ecstatic. Ecstatic can mean something. Uh, for example, in 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 the case of the Montanists or the uh, oracles of Delphi, uh, ecstasy means one is. Uh, basically unconscious of what is one, mm-hmm. one is doing and saying, whereas for Catholic mystics, uh, a state of ecstasy is one of intense intellectual focus. Uh, so, so these things have to be defined very carefully before we uh, plunge into discussing them. Yeah.
0: Now, historically, how has the church understood the, quote, gift of tongues that we uh, encounter in St. Paul's writings— and we also have the phenomenon of Pentecost. Yes,
1: right. I think the, the uh, mainstream tradition of church history and ecclesial writings understands uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, the gift of tongues uh, at Pentecost as being a miraculous gift of speaking uh, in foreign languages that were previously unknown or unlearned okay. by the apostles. Um, in Corinth... Uh, There's been a lot of debate over that, especially since 1900, but um, some of the early church fathers that we're going to look at in more detail in the third volume on the Church of Corinth, um, Epiphanius, um, uh, Cyril of Alexandria, Ambrosiaster, um, and and some others, they, they refer to what's happening in Corinth as simply a problem of natural translation of a sacred language that the people in the congregation were, un, uh, were could not understand, All right, Because uh, Corinth was a big crossroads of many different peoples, different languages being spoken. It was a, a city that was raised and and uh, rebuilt by Rome. So there was Latin there. There was Aramaic with the Jews there. There was uh, Greek, of course. There are many, many Egyptian, Domatic Egyptian languages and so forth uh so uh what was going on there, probably or at least according to some of the early church fathers, was a natural problem of translation
0: okay uh in Acts chapter two, we sometimes say that the what what the phenomenon there was not necessarily a uh a gift of speaking but a gift of hearing mm-hmm. what
1: What do we mean by that, yeah there's a debate about whether the gift of tongues in the book of Acts was a, was a gift of hearing or speaking. Now, that debate was provoked only in the 4th century uh, by um, uh, a Pentecost oration written by Gregory of Nazianzus, and his own view was that uh, uh, the gift of tongues was a gift of uh, miraculous speech. However, his translator into Latin, uh, Tyrenius Rufinus, uh, mistranslated uh, some of the uh, Greek of Gregory of Nazianzus. And as a result of this translation error, uh, there developed a debate over whether the gift was, in fact, a gift of speaking or a gift of hearing. And this uh, debate lasted about upwards of a millennium, 800-some years at least, maybe more. Okay. So, yeah. And was it settled? Um there was no magisterial statement on it but when you read some of the later writers like St. Thomas Aquinas um, Francisco Suarez that mm-hmm. um, the, the They allowed for both possibilities, but they said it makes most sense to understand it as a gift of speaking. And the reason why is that if you are given the gift of speaking with understanding, then if somebody is asking you questions, you can answer them. You can hear confessions. you You can interact. Whereas if you just understand, if it's a gift of hearing, then that's not possible. Yeah. So this
0: is uh, I mean this is fascinating. You write at one point that the only protracted debate in church history about the nature of speaking in tongues was over whether it was a gift of speaking or hearing. So this went on as you say for nearly a millennium. Right. Yeah. Right. Um let's let's go and uh, talk about the your second volume here tongues through church history and uh, your treatment of uh, these mentioned already uh, Thomas Aquinas, right? In Suarez, uh, before that though, you deal with uh, something I did ha- I'd never heard of before, and that is the Francis Xavier controversy and Pope Benedict the Fourteenth. Oh yeah, that compl-
1: yeah. never heard about it before. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating, and I didn't know about it either until maybe five years ago or so, but. Uh, one of the one of the major treatises on um, speaking in tongues and other miracles was written by Pope uh, Pope uh, Benedict the Fourteenth, who is probably the most uh, erudite and scholarly um, person to uh, have the office of the Holy See in, in Church history. He he's written multiple volumes. I mean, the whole big collections of his works and writings and uh, very scholarly wow. and. Uh, uh, the particular work that uh, deals with this issue with Saint Francis of uh, uh, Z- Saint Francis Xavier is is a volume that is concerned with the criteria for evaluating um, the claims to miracles uh, including tongues in cases of beatification and canonization so he's laying out the criteria for evaluating as authentic uh, what What kind of standards need to be met, and so forth, and he goes through some some very interesting history. He goes back through um, the history of of uh, tongue speaking uh, that is speaking in foreign languages uh, in Wales and scotland and and Ireland um, you know speakers of, of, of foreign languages miraculously uh, through various times and places in church history and uh, and some very interesting things he discusses what
0: what was francis xavier um dealing with with tongues was it uh, he, he's a quote foreign missionary yes so is he is he looking to tongues as a way of speaking a foreign language that
1: had not been learned uh yeah well he i don't think he was actually seeking the gift of tongues uh he was a missionary in india first and then uh in in uh, areas that we would call malaysia today and then finally in japan and hoping to go to China but never made it. But um, um, he he struggled with the Japanese language. He said this is a very difficult language to learn. And in some of his letters, he related this difficulty. And as a result of this, uh, some of the, um, the Protestant uh, – uh, this is during the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. 16th century, century. okay. A- and so some of the Protestant um, – Enemies of Rome, yeah. and 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 some of the rationalists of the period, uh, which is on the rise, uh, were very skeptical about uh, the claims of the Catholic Church that uh, that uh, Francis Xavier spoke in uh, miracu- miraculously in foreign languages, um, but. In the give and take between the skeptics and the Catholic uh, respondents, who included uh, all sorts of individuals, including uh, Father John Harden, who some of you probably know in mm-hmm. this area, uh, who wrote a, um, uh, an article in a journal. Um, the article was called uh, "The Miracles, the Miraculous Tongues of Saint Francis of uh, uh, Xavier," mm. and um, and in that give and take. They point out um, actually that there are a couple of things that that uh, Pope Benedict pointed out, Benedict the Fourteenth, not sixteenth uh, one maybe the most important was that there's no inconsistency between struggling with the foreign language on one occasion and then having the gift of speaking in tongues miraculously on another occasion, because the gift of tongues is a gift which is utterly gratuitous it It, it is given to you by god 's grace sheerly gratuitously, and, and one cannot earn it, one cannot expect it, it's something you, you get or you don't. And there were occasions where he clearly was given the gift of speaking in Japanese, in Yamaguchi, in Yamaguchi in Japan, which is uh, near the southern island, it's it's the coast of the, the main island. And uh, he was speaking to a large crowd in, uh, from a tree where he could have a, a high sort of prominent position from which to speak and people understood him clearly oh. right in Japanese and he he had not made a serious study of Japanese language he he tried to study it but he he struggled with it he could not naturally yeah. speak it yeah. with any he he had he had, um, he had a, a Japanese interpreter for a while but the interpreter was not especially good he was from a very poor class and and um, so when he was able to communicate yeah in articulate Japanese this just was a tremendous kind of shock to the people, right?
0: And he did yeah. he understand this as a, a, a gift of the Holy
1: Spirit? Definitely, yeah. most definitely. Okay. But the other thing was that uh, the skeptics, and there's some Catholic skeptics as well, um, a number of Jesuits were skeptical about his gift of uh, speaking in tongues. What, what uh, they suggested was that because he was silent about the matter. He never said, I received the gift of tongues. Mm-hmm. They said, well, maybe he didn't, all right? But then others who knew his character better said, well, it's his modesty. It's his humility. Yeah. He wasn't going to brag about this. Okay. Phil, hold it there. We've
0: got to take a break. Talking with Dr. Philip Blosser, uh, author of Speaking in Tongues, a Critical Historical Examination. We're taking a look at tongues through church history. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be right back. And good afternoon i'm al cresta with me Dr. Philip lasser. He is the co author of Speaking in Tongues: A Critical Historical Examination. The second of the three volumes is now in print, and uh, we're discussing uh the historical analysis here um, why why did you choose Suarez as a one figure to to treat here
1: okay yeah. wh- one thing to keep in mind if anyone uh reads this book is to uh, uh, to realize that it's going backwards through church history, and that's a little bit discombobulating to some people, you know, because <laughs> we're not starting at, you know, the time of Christ and working forward. We're starting at the at the surface level, so to speak, and digging down, going backwards. And so, um, uh, it, it's 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 a little disorienting. But the reason for that is we it it, it it mirrors the direction of our own research. We started with the phenomena that we're acquainted with today. Mm -hmm. at the surface level, and then we dig down like as if it was an excavation, and we dig down into history, seeing where these ideas came from, right? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. very good. So that's the approach. Yeah, and Suarez Suarez. occupies uh, an important place. He's not that well-known, which is interesting, because he's a a towering scholastic figure. He's just amazing. And, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas... We think of as a doctor of all doctors, you know, as as, um, uh, one of the popes has said. But uh, in another way, Suarez is just as encyclopedic as Thomas Aquinas was. He's been described as somebody who has made all of the prior doctors of the church, you know, his own – part of his own uh, sort of data, you know, that he – has in his mind, and so he's just—he's very important in that. And respect. he's important in a number of disciplines too.
0: Yes, yeah, I've, right. I've seen his name show up in economics, right. politics,
1: now, so. even even some Protestants are are acquainted with him. There's a reform scholar who uh, is, is who praises him very highly. Yeah, and Christian Wolff, the uh, the German philosopher that influenced Kant, uh, was very praise, praised praised uh, Suarez very highly, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah.
0: Um, so how does he how does he weigh in on this? Uh, the tongues claim associated with Xavier you mentioned was only a small uh, detail in his much larger body of work, mm-hmm.
1: but uh, significant, uh, very significant. Um, I think in in one way he's sort of summarizing the mainstream tradition, and he's important for that reason. But he's also important for the way he situates his discussion of tongues within a treatise on grace. And so he spends a lot of time developing the understanding of what grace is. And Mm -hmm. uh, makes a distinction, of course, between sanctifying grace, which is what's given to all Christians when they're baptized and and seek to walk in obedience with uh, our Lord Jesus. Uh, And then, on the other hand, gratuitous grace, which is something we cannot expect uh, as as, um, um, one of the... uh, one of one of the the scholars of uh, spiritual theology has said, uh, gratuitous grace is not something that we can expect to be part of our ordinary Christian life. Mm-hmm. Right, gratuitous mm-hmm. grace. I mean, we can seek the higher gifts, but that's not the same as receiving a gratuitous gift of a miraculous nature. Yeah, right? yeah,
0: yeah. Um, you also bring Thomas Aquinas in. Mm-hmm. two uh, same uh, chapter here and what does he contribute to this conversation obviously he's a, you know he's a doctor of all doctors he's a weighty figure uh, in our history and does he write on this question of tongues
1: the uh, nature of tongues he does and um, um it's 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 kind of odd going from Suarez to St. Thomas Aquinas because he comes before Suarez. But, but uh, uh, yeah, th- there, there are about six points that that I make in the uh, conclusion about St. Thomas Aquinas. And if I can just mention sure. it yeah, quickly. Yeah, no, um, very good. The first point is that he interprets tongue as word or lingua in Latin. Okay. And thus he understands the gift of tongues as a matter of ordinary language. And two... He takes the gift to be either miraculous, as in a missionary context, or non-miraculous and natural, as in a liturgical context. Hmm. Um, Although there's no reference in his works to any sort of uh, suggestion, uh, which we're going to look at in uh, Volume 3, suggestion that um, that there was a, a matter of a sacred language, which was then... Requiring an interpreter to be understood by the the assembly, uh, he has no reference to that. he still has an understanding of a liturgical context for language he He follows Saint Augustine, uh, who we'll look at a bit later. he follows St. Augustine and it's seeing the office of speaking in tongues as transitioning from the individual to the corporate church huh. right? and so the office of the lector right who reads uh, from the Scripture, from the you know, and 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 uh, typically that's translated by the priest or or explained in a homily or something. But uh, he sees that as, as as transitioning to the corporate church because the church now in his time speaks in all the languages of the world. Oh, right? that's interesting. Yeah,
0: yeah. So it becomes not uh, uh, necessarily an individual gift. It's right. been incorporated into the body of Christ. Uh, Universally, and so it it shows up then uh, at moments in l- the liturgy. The lector, yes, it the can lector, be, can see
1: that, right? Yeah. Now he also says that um, uh, the gift of tongues could also mean an ordinary talent for languages, right? Oh, and that's that's something very important, I think, through church history. One thing that we see frequently is that the gift of tongues is understood as simply a natural gift for languages, as well as in some cases, a miraculous gift. Uh, so, you know, my daughter has a gift for languages, and she's, she knows three languages now in addition to English, mm-hmm. uh, Italian and Latin and Greek. Wow. And um, and uh, so she has a gift of tongues in that sense. Sure, right? sure, sure. And uh, yeah. that, that's the way in which it's often used in church history and ecclesial documents, which is kind of interesting. A fourth point he makes is that um, tongues is not the same as prophecy, but he holds that one who prays in a foreign language with understanding accomplishes more than one who merely recites such a prayer without understanding. So even in his time, there was this this phenomenon of people reciting, sort of rattling off prayers that they didn't really understand. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, th- that's the kind of thing that maybe in Volume 3 we'll look at in the context of St. Paul's Assembly in Corinth. You know, what was being done there? Yeah. What yeah. was that kind of thing going on there where, you know, there's speaking to God but without understanding. It. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Saint Paul, of course, favors uh being able to speak with
1: understanding. Right. Yeah. Right. That's to be uh to be uh has priority. There's one place and only one where Saint Thomas uses the word or the expression unknown tongue. And it's in reference to Acts chapter two, verse four, where it means Speaking in a language like non-Aramaic language, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the apostles.
0: So that's, that's o- the only reference he has
1: on use of tongues in Acts chapter 2. The only reference to unknown tongues. Okay. Right? That expression doesn't appear in any of his writings except when he's commenting on Acts chapter 2 verse 4.
0: What was... How was this? You know, we started. Said we started back here in the twenty first century to the twentieth century, nineteenth century. We're going back. We're doing archaeological dig here, digging down different strata that we're looking at. Um, I mean, I'm just curious. Do do we know? I mean, the, the, the local parish at that time. We don't have. People did not have the liturgical resources we have today. But I'm just curious, was there any, um, at that time, any group that you could say, oh, they're the equivalent of a charismatic community today or a Pentecostal community today operating, you know, within
1: the uh, the diocese? There's... Um there are, of course, the Montanists. Yeah, yeah, are sort of like that in <laughs> a sense because they claimed to be moved by the Holy Spirit, and they claim to represent a new prophecy. Right, a new prophecy. Yeah. Um, the, the trouble there is that the word glossa is not used in all the any of the key passages. Well. The word glossa, the your tongue, is not not used. And the other problem is that. Uh, uh, Bishop uh, Eusebius of Caesarea roundly condemns them as right. diabolical, <laughs> <laughs> which is not too you don't helpful. want to really
0: <laughs> want to be associated with them. Right. Yeah.
1: Now, I, I've read some some um, Pentecostal and charismatic literature in which they, the attempt is made to try to sort of rehabilitate the Montanists, yeah. and I understand that because they were sort of perfectionists and so on. But but there's still some real major problems with them, and one of the problems with Tertullian, of course, is that. Uh, he seceded from the church to join them, but then he seceded from them to form his own uh, very anti-Catholic really? uh, at the community end. at the end, yeah, which is really troubling when you, th- you <laughs> dig into it.
0: <laughs> I, knew he, I knew he had uh, left uh, the, the mainstream yeah. in joining the Montanists. I didn't realize he'd started
1: his own wing. He did, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Something which is did. why he's not St. Tertullian, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right
0: what do what do we know about that
1: about his his secession? his
0: own his own secession yeah, not
1: a whole lot there's a little bit in um oh what's his name um, i can't remember the name of the scholar he's a well known German liberal scholar from the nineteenth century, but harnack um, Harnack is the one yeah. yes he's the one yeah, yeah he had the history of dogma yeah big, and big so he, he mentions it, yeah, he mentions it, and uh, he he tries to date it and so forth yeah. it's a very interesting, interesting movement. <laughs> um, definitely. Um, if I can go back. To St. Thomas? Not to St. Thomas, but to – there's a chapter we kind of skipped over a little bit. We talked a little bit about it, but it's a chapter on hearing and, you know, versus speaking. Yes, yes. And w- one of the figures in that chapter that I find particularly interesting is uh, Origen. Yeah. He's another one who's not a saint, Origen, because he flirted with uh, universalism. right. Um, My son wrote a dissertation at Catholic University on origin, and he claims that these were never beliefs that he was propounding as his own, but were merely speculative, so he tries to exonerate him. But still, I find him very interesting for what he says about tongues, and I have several points here. One is that uh, he was no cessationist. I'll tell yeah. you, it
0: looks like we're going to have to take a break. So oh, sure, that's there. We'll take that's the break yeah. and uh, continue on to make this a little cleaner. There uh, with me, Doctor Philip Blosser. He is a co-author of "Speaking in Tongues: A Critical Historical Examination." On the other side of the break, we'll come back and talk about uh, Origin, uh, the great uh, Catholic thinker, uh, and I think you know he is often a universally he's been considered a father of universalism, but uh, this has now been uh, challenged. Good afternoon, I'm Al Christman. Rest uh, with me is Dr. Philip Blosser, co-author of Speaking in Tongues, A Critical Historical Examination. And we've been, again, burrowing down through church history, we were talking about origin. um, And, again, one of the most influential uh, Catholic teachers, although uh, not a saint. uh, He's not not canonized a saint. Let's put it this way. Um, And, you know, because he was Thought to teach that all would be saved, but on this question of tongues,
1: what what does he offer us? Yeah, there's several points uh, I would make about Origin. Uh, One is uh, that he supposed that the Apostle Paul was graced with the gift of many languages in a natural sense, in order to carry out the gospel many different nations. You know, in the book of Acts, I think there's a reference to Spain. He may have gone as yeah, far as Spain. Right. And he was a student of Gamaliel, and um, he was a protege of Gamaliel. So when he, when he defected to the, uh, to, to the way of following Jesus, this was a big loss for Gamaliel. Uh, he would have been familiar where he grew up in, in Tarsus, which is in southeastern Turkey today, with uh, Aramaic and also with Greek. He would yep. have known those two languages. And he would have learned um, the, the different levels of Hebrew. He would have learned the holy Hebrew, um, the the sacred language of Hebrew okay. from Gamaliel as a student. And he, he knew Latin as well. He would have known Latin. <clears throat> and so he is. When, when he says, I speak in tongues more than all of you, he he's probably saying, I, you know, I was, I, I, I'm able to speak more languages than all of you, and yet I mm-hmm. would rather speak a language that you understand, yeah. you know, to communicate. So this is one point that he makes that among one of his more interesting passages uh, in origin suggests that Paul's words about praying and s- singing with the Spirit, this is in First Corinthians 14, 15, involved a reference to psalmody. Huh, that yeah. it was singing the psalms, reciting and singing the songs in, a, in psalms in a liturgical context. That's one po- another point. Uh, a third point is that in his commentary on First Corinthians thirteen, the love chapter, <clears throat> he suggests that um, Origin suggests that um, that um, Paul, when he was referring to the tongues of angels, was using hyperbole. Right, that this is hyperbole yeah. and not intended to be taken literally. Angels, of course, uh, don't communicate in languages as we do. Right. Anyway, they they know by means of a direct uh, intellectual intuition, without any need for sensible sort of interaction and so forth. Um, the last point is the one that is the most uh, controversial and the most interesting, I think, and it's the point that. Uh, has to do with his treatment of Celsus. Celsus had written a book uh, The under, Heretic Celsus. Yeah, The yeah, Heretic yeah. Celsus, yeah. a work against Christians. And in Origen's work, Contra Celsum, uh, he says that uh, uh, when when Origen quotes Celsus, this is the only way we know what he, what he wrote because Celsus' original work is lost. So when he quotes Celsus as referring to prophets who speak in, quote, Strange, fanatical, quite unintelligible words of which no rational person can find the meaning. Hmm. There's some Pentecostal authors who have taken this as an unwitting attestation of Christians speaking in a glossolalic tongues yeah. in in the day of uh, in the day of origin. Um, however. The problem with that is that there's no indication that Origen himself believed Celsus had properly identified these prophets as Christian, let alone signaled his approval for their utterances, which he refers to in the following manner. He says, for so dark are they as to have no meaning at all, but they give occasion to every fool or imposter to apply them to suit their own purposes, And uh, furthermore, the word "glossa" never appears in the context of his discussion of celsus, so uh, this cannot be understood at least by origin. This was not understood as referring to the gift of tongues, hmm. right This is something else going on
0: hmm. interesting, I yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, you also uh, look at Augustine
0: and Chrysostom, yes, uh, as, as we dig back uh, tell
1: us tell us what we can learn from uh, Saint John Chrysostom. Chrysostom is um, one of the seven or so Church Fathers who is uh, quoted most often by um, by Pentecostals and Charismatic scholars. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the one thing that's kind of interesting, if you really get into Charles Sullivan, my my co author's um, research, he points out that these are not even the key the key texts. There there, there are many more authors like like uh, Epiphanius of Salamis hmm. and uh, Ambrosiaster and uh, Cyril of Alexandria that are much more relevant to the issue of tongues than some of these uh, these others. They deal with it more directly. More direct, right? Yeah. Now, Chrysostom uh, does speak of the decline of the the phenomenon of tongues in his own day. And some writers, some Protestants in the sixteenth century, refer to this in order to bolster their claims to cessationism. Yes,
0: that that it's there. It's been it's been um, these gifts have been uh, finished as at the end of the apostolic age. Exactly,
1: exactly. Now. He doesn't really say that. He's not a cessationist. However, he does say that the more extravagant gifts have declined. And he says they have declined because of the decline in virtue among Christians. Oh, that's interesting. The decline in discipline and sanctity, right? And so he's very suspicious of the spiritual dangers of pride associated with the miraculous gift of tongues and with people who identify themselves as miracle workers. He, he, he thinks that's dangerous. He promotes instead um, a very ascetical sort of discipline uh, which fosters what he believes is a life of spiritual growth and sanctity right that 's what he's concerned with now that 's one point that he makes the other point though that's relevant to our topic here is one that he makes about um, about uh, foreign languages in the church. And he says this. He also expressed an awareness of an earlier time than his own. An earlier time before St. Chrysostom lived. He he was the bishop of uh, uh, what became Constantinople and is now Istanbul, right? And before his time, he says he was aware of a time in the church when the sacred liturgical language in the churches would have been unknown to most of the people in the assembly. And therefore, they needed interpreters to interpret what was being done, mm-hmm. right? So that's very significant. That, uh, and, and it's also sort of an odd admission because 40 years after Chrysostom, Cyril of Alexandria acknowledges that this practice continues in various Christian churches mm. of having a sacred language which requires the an interpreter. interpreter. To yeah, interpret, for, the,
0: right? for the atten- those in right. attendance, um, does St. Augustine also believe that g- gifts are in decline? Yes,
1: yeah. right. Now, I think one, one area where some scholars are erroneous is they think that Augustine have ch- changed his mind about miracles, that they had ceased, and then he goes back to believing that they, oh. they still continue. I think that's a mistake. I don't think he ever gave up the view that miracles continued, but he, he did believe that the more extravagant gifts have declined.
0: Yeah, Did he attribute that to lack of sanctity of, among the people?
1: He's not as clear on that as uh, Chrysostom is. Yeah. So I don't know about the reason for the decline, but he does acknowledge their decline.
0: And how does he deal with the uh, gift of tongues uh, or Acts chapter 2, the phenomenon of Acts chapter 2?
1: It's interesting. He doesn't directly address that. His, his uh, discussion of tongues comes primarily up in connection with his his uh, controversy with the donatists the donatists claimed that their ability to speak in unlearned foreign languages was uh, an attestation to god's favor over against the institutional church which they regarded as corrupt right, right. um in lax and lax yeah, yeah. yeah and so um so yeah he he um he doesn't directly exegete um, Acts chapter 2 uh, in connection with tongues. That, that's just not an issue that, that comes up in that context. But over against Adonatus, he, um, he argues that their their gift of tongues is, is inauthentic. Inauthentic. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah.
0: so they, they, they cannot present that as evidence that they are uh, the, the church.
1: Right, yeah, and 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 again, one thing that that is repeated by Suarez later on, but uh, one thing that comes from Saint Augustine is the claim that the gift of tongues has moved from the individual to the corporate church. Right, Saint Augustine holds that too. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. he's the one who originally pushed that view in a very prominent way. He argues that uh, originally in an apostolic times and sub-apostolic times, the gift of miraculous. A knowledge of foreign languages was needed for the purpose of evangelization. However, that purpose is no longer—evangelism is still required, but since the church now embraces the world and all the languages of the world, he puts it in those universal terms, um, the individual gift of tongues is no longer needed. Interesting. Right. Yeah. And Suarez repeats that.
0: Um, Going back, you also deal with a number of other uh, figures in in church history. Let mm-hmm. me ask you about another of the great uh, creative theologians of the era, and that's Irenaeus. Um, <clears throat> how does he deal with uh, this question of tongues?
1: Yeah, Irenaeus is significant because he's a very early uh, church father. He um, he heard the preaching of Polycarp, who was a a disciple of uh, the Apostle John, right? right? So yeah. he's he's right down there in the time of the apostles, and uh, that's significant in itself. But the other point is simply that he, although he didn't write a whole lot about tongues, when he refers to tongues, it's clear that he refers to tongues only in a sense of ordinary human languages which are spoken miraculously, right? That's the main point hmm. with uh, Irenaeus. That's interesting. Yeah.
0: Now, we were talking off the air earlier about the the phenomenon that grows out of the higher critical movement of the 19th and early 20th century. Right. And that is that uh, tongues or glossolalia um, have ceased. And tell me, why would they conclude that?
1: Well, the the higher critics, yeah, the, the, that's what we're talking about now, yes, right? right? The higher critics tended to be quite liberal theologians, mostly in Germany to begin with, and, um, and were they anti-supernaturalists in general? Not not all of them, but some of the key ones we're concerned with were yeah. right. And um, uh, actually, the 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 earliest attempt to uh, interpret tongues in a way that is a not a non-ordinary human language, that in, in other words, it's not a human language, was by uh, a German um, writer by the name of Christoph Bardili. All right? So he, he, the, it sounds Italian, but he was German. And in 1786, he wrote a, a work in which he claimed that uh, the gift of tongues in Scripture refers to a, a, a language that is humanly unintelligible. Right. He was the first to raise that. And the next person um, who I was aware of, but I didn't know he was that important, uh, somebody who stressed it was is Johann Herder, all right? Yeah. Johann Herder. Okay. And we'll talk more about him maybe. Later. Yeah,
0: well, we may not be able to get to it today. Okay. But
1: uh, Phil, thank you so
0: much. It's wonderful being with you. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next volume. When will it be?
1: It was supposed to be last August, right? (laughs) But we're finding so much new literature that we're just going to take more time. We'll talk again. Yeah.